what to keep, uh, what to drop and what to reduce when it comes to nutritional equivalents in animal-based products. How do we foster innovation there? I think as there are better tasting products, they become distributed more. Not just taste better, but may deliver on a lower price point. Silicon Valley, the most innovative spot on earth. Corporate, the place for corporate executives that transforms innovative threats into business opportunities. And now, let's get ready to rumble with the host, Tommaso. We are live. Well, then I have to say good morning or good afternoon, good evening. I'm thrilled to have you guys join our 13th episode of our virtual coffee. And today, I have the pleasure to learn um, with three brilliant uh, panelists that I would like to kick off here and introduce. For, uh, for those who follow us, uh, they know already MJ, MJ Kine, food scientist specializing in plant-based product development, largely within natural and organic foods segments. MJ Career has spanned B2B, B2C, and nonprofit sectors of the food and beverage industry. MJ, welcome back. Christine, Christine Gaut, founder and CEO of Thought for Food, an amazing institution whose inspiring mission is to catalyze the creation of thousands of new ideas and support the launch of some of the world's most game-changing social impact startups in food tech. Christine, welcome here to our virtual coffee. And last but not least, Nick Cooney, founder and managing partner at Lever VC, a venture capital fund investing in early stage companies and the next gen protein space with focus on plant-based and cultivated meat, egg and dairy companies. Nick, such a pleasure to have you. And I would like to kick off things and pick MJ's brain with the first question, MJ. What is coming down the pipeline as it pertains to plant-based foods, specifically those mimicking legacy animal-based products? Please take it from here. Yeah, um, great question. Uh, something that is always on the forefront of my mind, especially with my line of work, uh, developing food products in the space. So when I look at the alternative protein uh, category as a whole, I look at it in terms of applications in meat, eggs, and dairy. And so one of the first things that comes to mind is defining what plant-based means as a standard. I think we really saw this emergence uh, come about as an alternative to the word vegan and also to describe what was really a revolutionary and innovative category being an alternative to legacy animal products. So in that meat, egg and dairy category. So what that means is a, is a standard for the whole food industry, I think is gonna be one of the more immediate things coming down the pipeline. Um, and hopefully it will benefit the community uh, as opposed to limit it severely. I just know that I was going shopping for groceries the other day and I love my classic little cup of like ramen noodles and they are now being marketed as plant-based. And if that's really a nutritional story for the consumer, um, I myself know that I am consuming a lot of starch <laughs> in that product, but there isn't a, you know, a true uh, complete meal to be had in that application. Um, so what does plant-based mean is, is probably the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I think also collectively as a, as a community to, to know what 
what to keep, uh, what to drop and what to reduce when it comes to nutritional equivalents in animal-based products uh, versus plant-based ones or soon to be cultivated, I hope, because it's, it's more than just a protein story. Uh, complete protein is kind of being approached in, in a very tiptoe fashion. Some companies abide by it very strictly and others kind of fly under the radar, um, hoping that someone might catch their mistakes later, uh, but don't really incorporate a, a true complete protein narrative with their product. Uh, I think that products that currently mimic animal-based ones, especially in the meat category, will spread into other types of meat products. So not just focusing on, on beef and what is now, I think, becoming more popular being chicken, but also within uh, pork and seafood. I think there will definitely be a stronger emergence in seafood in the next couple of years, fingers crossed. And uh, that as those products continue to develop, they're going to move like outside of this restructured meat category and into uh, what I refer to as like a whole muscle cut. So something that's really going to match the fibrosity and texture of something that isn't pre-ground. So those are some things that come top of mind. I think as far as things that I've seen that I couldn't have expected, but are growing in popularity in my line of work are uh, alternative products in meat, eggs, and dairy and uh, dairy specifically being yogurt and cheeses, where they're not trying to make it taste exactly like the animal-based product, but actually trying to really take advantage of and leverage the whole food ingredients that are being utilized to create similar structures or formats for those types of products. And I think innovative ways to launch a product are is like probably the last one I'll include. So, um, you know, we live in a pandemic era and it's not maybe the best time to start a food business when it comes to getting your product out there to consumers who have never heard of you before. So how do you, how do you go about doing that? And I think um, subscription services might be a gateway and a new way of launch. Very interesting. And a lot, uh, a lot here to chew on, uh, literally. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Nick. Uh, uh, maybe I want to build a bridge here uh, from one perspective to the perspective then of, of a VC and investing in those new categories, right? Tell me about the Lever VC experience investing in next-gen protein space. Why do you focus on plant-based at all and, and, and cultivated meat? Sure. So uh, as some of your listeners may be familiar with, this is a space that's growing very rapidly and not just here in the U.S., but globally. So for Lever VC, we're a global fund. Our main offices are in New York and Hong Kong, and we're looking at the sector globally. So whether you're looking at the year-over-year growth rate in these categories, so some of those plant-based dairy categories that MJ mentioned, plant-based meat itself, other areas, if you look at the growth and in innovation on the higher tech side, so companies producing real animal protein from cell cultivation or from fermentation or directly in plants, there's just a lot of really interesting innovation that is going to be bringing, is starting to bring, and in a more serious way is going to bring these real animal proteins into plant-based products, and then in time into fully cultivated or fermented meat and dairy products over the next couple of years. So it's, it's really exciting from a technology perspective. It's growing very quickly from a market size perspective. And from a deal flow perspective, there's more and more companies entering the space all the time. You know, we, uh, for Lever VC, we have a, a proprietary database where we try to track pretty much all the companies in the sector, companies doing meat, eggs, or dairy from either plant-based ingredients or higher tech cell cultivation and so on. At this point, there's over 1,300 companies globally that we're tracking, and there's several new ones, at least several new ones that come online pretty much every week. So 
for all of those things, it's both a really exciting space. Uh, it's a space with a huge amount of financial opportunity. And of course, it's also a sector that as the sector grows and as these companies and our portfolio companies succeed, it's also nice to know that it has a really great impact on the environment and, and society in general as well. Follow up question here. How did you get actually at all into, into the space? I mean, uh, the future of food is, is one umbrella, right? But already just focusing on alternative protein. Well, how did you get into the space? Why focus on that? Oh, what, what was the team's background? Yeah. So for me personally, I got into it over 20 years ago. So I've been eating these products for over 20 years and certainly have watched them evolve from the early forms, which were not very good tasting or well marketed or accepted by the mainstream public to where things are now. So you know, further back, I worked on the policy, NGO, uh, consulting side of things, began investing in the space five years ago, uh, previously through a family office investment vehicle. And you know, around that time, around 2015, 2014, 2015, as this space was starting to hit a bit of an inflection point and there was starting to be increased investment funding, starting to be a number of these high technology companies, starting to see more mainstream placement of the plant-based meat and dairy products. It became pretty clear that there's, uh, you know, this is this is an inflection point. There is a lot of opportunity here. So, you know, for me, it started certainly from a personal ethical perspective. That's what led me to begin eating these products and continue eating them to this day. And that passion for the space and wanting these companies to succeed is certainly what drives my work day in and day out. Uh, my colleague and partner Lawrence, who sits in Hong Kong, his background is general financial uh, industry. So. I've been doing VC and private equity investing for over 15 years, deployed about 1.5 billion in capital. He's made major investments in the conventional animal protein sector, but also began making investments, direct deals in plant-based meat and dairy and so on about five years ago as well. Uh, so that included early investments in Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, and a few others. And so for him was also seeing the way the total protein sector was trending, seeing the opportunities here in alternative protein. So they're both coming to it from different backgrounds, but seeing the opportunity. Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, so it's here to stay uh, uh, and it's great. It's great to see. It's great to see. I was just checking if my mic is off. It's great to see that out of passion, right? It, it becomes business and, and, and create more opportunity. Speaking of which, more opportunity, Christine, you have been creating more and more opportunities in the space, right? Um, what are the main areas um, and programs in which Thought for Food acts to stimulate the creation of new ideas and support the launch, actually, of game-changing and social impact startups in, in, in food tech. Uh, curious to hear that, your perspective on that. Absolutely. Thanks for the great question. Um, and I've been taking lots of notes from the previous speakers. Um, indeed, Thought for Food, we're actually a nonprofit organization that's really focused on, you know, creating change to our food system at the systemic level. So we run innovation challenges specifically targeting millennials and Gen Zs, who are the largest demographic alive today. And they also bring um, forward, you know, kind of really interesting innovation mindsets and approaches, especially when it comes to food and agriculture. And so what we do is we really like catalyze the creation of new ideas. We accelerate the most promising ones. And then we also invest in 
you know, well-vetted companies and connect them also to partnerships in the industry. And what we've seen even before, you know, Corona times, and I know the other speakers here will understand is that there has been this big rise of interest and innovation in the plant-based space, which has been driven in large part by millennials and Gen Zs um, who tend to bring like an open mind towards some of these innovations in terms of like from the sustainability perspective, of course, but also from like that experiential perspective, like open to trying new types of food products, right? And especially food products that are bringing forward impact. Now, one of the things that I mentioned is that we are focused on system change. So we do want to create companies that keep kind of a positive impact at their core. And of course, what you're seeing in the plant-based and alternative protein space is that there is a narrative that's very pervasive, right, about positive impact on animal welfare and the environment. We're trying to actually really push that to go further, to say, okay, how can we avoid the mistakes and pitfalls that, you know, agriculture has created to date, such as monocultures? How can we also create more circular business models that are empowering farmers and are leveraging underutilized crops, for example, or that are focused on kind of like open source models? right? So that we can like empower more innovation and not just hold back IP. So these are kind of like the experiment, experimental ways that we're trying to foster not only new innovations, but new approaches to business that can really make our food system more sustainable, more regenerative, and more inclusive than it's ever been. And I think the other thing that is exciting to see in the, you know, young people led companies that are, you know, generating of which there are, you know, thousands around the world is that they are are demanding, you know, like I said, more from food products. And they want to see the companies that are emerging answer questions around nutrition, about transparency, you know, and a lot of these things, it's like they're seeing past hype and really demanding kind of more authentic approaches to these new companies that are coming forward. In terms of geography, uh, Christine, uh, where are you seeing uh, the most uh, pull demand from from ideas uh, coming from i mean we, we we have learned over the last weeks that that europe has uh, not just a big supply but also big demand right and you and you live in in switzerland what would you say uh, what, what are your numbers uh, in terms of what's what movements well, yeah, I mean, we're actually a totally global organization. So, you know, we're working actually in 175 countries and our innovation focus areas aren't just in plant-based, it's actually across the whole food and ag value chain. And we're seeing, you know, types of innovations emerge in different geographies in what you might call food tech and, and alternative protein space. So, you know, since 2011, we've been seeing companies and insects, right? Insect protein for both humans and animal feed. We've definitely seen, you know, different types of plant-based approaches um, happen all around the world, but particularly in Asia and of course, South America and the United States. And then, you know, we, we had a company like in um, Eastern Europe actually doing some plant-based like um, charcuterie products. So, you know, it's kind of like interesting. I mean, that's been a phenomenon for some time. And then, of course, over the past five years, I would say we've really seen an upsurge in companies like in the cell ag and fermentation space. And this is something that's really fascinating to me because my personal background is actually in biotech and GMOs. And I've been really interested to see that, like, there's been more interest on the consumer side for 
GMO processes to bring these types of products, you know, then for example, GMO crops, which were met with a lot of reluctance from the consumer. And I think like, you know, there's kind of more of an open mind uh, now when it comes to biotech and its potential in this industry. And the other interesting thing that I see is that, you know, seven years ago, people were saying, sell ag, it's never going to get past the hype, this is never going to work. And over the past five years, you've actually seen some like, you know, success stories emerge and this slew of investment coming in and some really interesting, you know, ways of people proving, you, you know, what people said wasn't going to be possible, that it is possible. So it's a really exciting trend to see. And, and a question maybe here for, for as a group, what, what are we seeing in terms of acceptance from cooperation, from the traditional big players when it comes to collaborate with, you know, idea projects or name it startups, right, in ideation phase? Um, this might be maybe for our for our audience also something very interesting. Do we see a more a, a, a growing receptivity in terms of embracing these projects, right? Or, or is it still, you know, very very traditional approach on now we are the big ones and you know we do our business maybe maybe uh, you know who has some experience might might jump in here um an observation that i've made in that space is i think that more collaboration is happening that falls outside of the traditional route for product development at the very least and i say that because uh, many store brands private label brands are actually launching their own plant-based meat products and that's really great because private label does a couple of things. You know, the advertising and the high expenses affiliated with the cost of a food product or really any product on the market are steeply reduced when it is a store brand as opposed to one that's trying to make it out on its own as like a flagship product for that category. But the other thing too is that traditionally that hasn't happened because public or excuse me, uh, private label only comes into the scene once a product has almost reached a commodity level. It's been developed in such a way that that's a, it's no longer, um, it's so obvious, it's like no longer almost innovative. So for store brands to almost be uh, the other innovators in the space in launching a product is, is huge. And that takes a lot of collaboration because manufacturing facilities, they don't necessarily brand themselves in this space right now. And that means that private label has to secure a very large volume. So they are making those partnerships and creating those collaborations to make at least the manufacturing route happen. And they're working very closely with those manufacturers, I take it, because they don't necessarily bring the expertise to develop the food products themselves. Very interesting. Any other perspectives, uh, Christine, Nick? Well, I can just jump in. I mean, I think if you've been reading the news, of course, like you've seen companies like Danone really announcing their intentions to, I think it was like 5 billion euros um, in plant-based product sales by 2025. So you're seeing some of the big incumbents, like, you know, really embracing disruption. I also like have a background in a big multinational agribusiness that provides like inputs and seeds right into agriculture. And, you know, many years ago, like, they were already talking about how they could start to feed into this market with, you know, um, premiumized like pea protein and uh, soy products. So I do think that there's like opportunities for collaboration. And that's also something that I think is an important message for viewers to understand. So much of the conversation right now in how to be a plant-based innovator focuses on the product innovation, but there's also this whole supply chain that requires innovation. And I think that's an also really exciting place for, you know, Thought for Food is trying to catalyze that and for other innovators to get involved and in like what, you know, how do we innovate breeding programs for the crops? How are we also like managing, you know, processing technologies and, you know, waste streams, et cetera. Um, again, back to that circular economy point I made 
So I think that there's um, a lot of opportunities for innovation beyond just like the product itself that's sold to the consumer. Well, I want, I want to piggyback. To the, Nick, you want to say something to that or? or... Oh, please go ahead. No, uh, and and I want to piggyback actually what uh, what MJ and Christine is saying. And there there are a lot of opportunities from a from a corporation perspective to collaborate. And actually, this is a main uh, challenge too for many corporations to access uh, um, opportunities, deals, something that drives innovation for the corporations themselves. So, long story short, how can corporations? in the industry of agriculture innovate, right? That's, that's everybody talks about innovation, right? But how to create more collaborations with startups? Well, if, uh, if you as a corporation are thinking and collaborating more with startups, investing eventually into startups, but you don't wanna put a uh, fund and set up a fund as a, as, as a global corporation on the side, you don't wanna build an entire uh, investment arm as a business unit and you're not sure how to vet startups, then there is also a vehicle and initiatives, initiatives called uh, uh, VC, CVCs, corporate VCs, which you can tap in. And that's where awesome ventures might come in place. A VC that focuses on helping corporates and corporation industry and the industry of food uh, to invest in startups as a partner, investing with and on behalf of them. If you want to know more about how to invest in startups without setting up your own fund, uh, feel free to send an email to cvc at awesm.io. And now, because we're getting into the second round of question here um, uh, for our amazing lineup of uh, speakers, of panelists, MJ, Christine, and, and Nick today. I would like to um, hear the opinion again of MJ. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that will either significantly slow down or prevent plant-based foods from reaching consumer accessibility. What are your thoughts on this, Andy? Uh, I think that there will be things that happen in the day-to-day, -day, something that you might stumble upon in your routine uh, work uh, that could prevent some of these challenges from actually coming into fruition. I think there will also be things that happen collectively over a long period of time. But I often find myself wondering, like, how can I prevent like these bad things from happening essentially? And so I looked at like the routine day-to-day -day stuff. And I think what that looks like is a lack of misalignment and communication between ultimately the consumer communicators or marketing and the product developers being typically food scientists. Um, getting on the same page with what is expected of a food product is keystone. And it also is going to really have a hand and a play in overall that organoleptic experience of the product. And sometimes, you know, what I've seen to be true is that there's a very long list of deliverables from a marketing aspect, but without any insight into how that actually looks on the formulation side. So as long as those two uh, parties can communicate effectively what those challenges are, I think that it's going to lend to better tasting products in the end and also ones that taste, not just taste better, but may deliver on a lower price point. I think also in the day-to-day -day and um, to Christine's point about circular economies and supply chain, I think that a level of unpreparedness in procurement uh, and sourcing these raw materials is really critical. If we are leaning on plant proteins in the pulse category, for instance, 
for, so basically one source of raw material to meet everyone's plant-based protein content across all plant-based products. Uh, we have to look into which geographical regions those crops grow best. When there are times of harvest are, we need to get very intentional about our conversations as a B2C brand with our B2B partners that are in ingredient manufacture and knowing if we sign a commitment with you today, can you grow enough product to have it available for us in one to two years? Um, there have been a lot of really great ingredients that have entered the plant-based market that didn't really have a place before the creation of these new categories. And I think uh, potato protein is one of them. But for anybody who is formulating with potato protein, it's very hard to find a reliable supply uh, if you haven't already contracted with somebody in that ingredient business. Um, Long-term, things that happen collectively over time, I think, uh, I think the limited availability uh, in the co-manufacturing landscape is going to be a major, is already a major bottleneck. Uh, so you don't have uh, very many players in that landscape that are saying, hey, we know how to produce uh, plant-based meat, egg, or dairy products. Uh, come to us. We are your turnkey solution. Right now, what's happening, our, um, our companies are bringing level of intellectual property to a co-manufacturer, and they're partnering together and collaborating very strongly in order to really release products. And um, that's not necessarily a problem, but it may lend to some uh, challenges when it comes to that co-manufacturer wanting to establish themselves in that space, but having learned everything they did from essentially a first customer. And in that same vein, it would be something collectively over a period of time. I think the intellectual property limitations for these customized solutions, one of the main things I learned working in the B2B uh, ingredient space uh, of the food industry is that the ingredients can really make or break how great an end product is. And if you're leaning on a customized solution, whether it's in your equipment or in your ingredients, and that is only limited to the biggest customer that can purchase at the largest volumes, then it's not going to help the community as a whole. I think, yeah, I think that's all I have to offer for that question. A, 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 lot, a lot to unpack, right, MJ? Uh, and actually, you know, um, I, I will spread a couple of questions uh, also to Christine and Nick from what, what you're saying here. But one point that really uh, I've, I've heard now multiple times is the mix between uh, the development of, from, from a product as a scientist perspective and the marketing, right? As a startup, where do you put more energy? Because at the end of the day, once you once the product hits, hits the shelf, right? If you go the traditional uh, retail route, right? How can the user make the difference, right? So, and then you were mentioning in your previous in your previous aspect uh, the uh, new business models, right? Would you say, MJ, that a potential new business model, meaning going maybe uh, uh, direct to consumer online, uh, might uh, help leverage, I don't know, a bigger awareness or, or might educate the end consumer better instead of going traditional route and being on the uh, on the shelf? What are your thoughts on this or experiences? Well, what have you seen there? Oh, admittedly, my experience is very limited here. Like, I don't pretend to be a marketer. I'd like to believe that I can communicate effectively with somebody who's in marketing. Um, but launch strategy, I really view that as like, oh, tell me more, because it's something that I admittedly don't know enough about. I'd like to believe that something that's going to bring more convenience to the consumer, like a direct-to-consumer uh, subscription service, would be a winner. But I don't know that for certain, and I don't feel qualified enough to speak upon it. Maybe well, Nick or Christine might have something to contribute. Sure, happy to jump in with a few thoughts. Um, so I guess maybe taking a step back to the broader question, I think one of, the, one of the biggest challenges, which is a challenge that's hard to control in terms of growth of the sector is the inertia that people have as individual consumers and that companies have, whether it's the retailers, food service companies, et cetera, that might be using the product. So I think from a long-term perspective, I would view that as, as one of the major barriers 
um, to the to the note about convenience and and um, hitting on things that really do matter to consumers who are trying the products. Certainly, I think you know price, convenience, and taste are clearly the things that dominate these decisions. Um, and convenience is one of those. Price is another. Uh, taste is in you know the surveys I've seen, the research I've seen, always ends up being actually the you know one of the number one determinants uh, when you look at actual purchasing data. It appears anyway, and so within, of course, a, you know, a certain range of convenience and, and, um, and price. So I think that that's one area where, to the extent that these products continue to improve in, in taste and texture and, and flavor and so on, that's what's going to really unlock a lot of things. It's obviously going to make more people willing to try the product because they'll hear positive reviews, more willing to repurchase the product. If we look at what's happened in the U.S. with, uh, say, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, the reason, I mean, there were probably a few reasons that three or four or five years ago, there were no QSRs with plant-based meat. Um, part of that might be less consumer interest, but you know, I would attribute 95% plus of the reason that you have that in those places now and you didn't five years ago is because you didn't have a product that was good enough to really succeed in those, in those channels. And now you do with Impossible and Beyond. So I think as there are more products that hit that threshold where it works in these additional channels, that that taste improvement is what's going to allow the convenience improvement so that now we can go to Starbucks, Burger King, et cetera, and get plant-based meat. And it's you know, directly attributable to a few things, but primarily the improvement in the quality of the products. And I think this will also in turn contribute to the price coming down and being more accessible. So to, to MJ's point and comments about the, um, these, some of these products becoming, to some extent, commodity products when you have white label producers and so on, I think as there are better tasting products, they become distributed more, it becomes much more convenient, sales grow, that stimulates others to get in the game, whether it's major meat producers, new startups, et cetera. And that competition and that kind of spreading of knowledge um, of how to produce these products, even though it's indirect, right? It's, it's looking at an ingredient label, trying to replicate it, et cetera. That ultimately is what leads towards the commodification. And that is what is gonna bring down the pricing in time as there's more entrance and larger scale. So I think that, um, Long story short, I think the, uh, the quality of these products, the taste and texture, that's really a linchpin that will drive those other levers that lead to this broader consumer acceptance. Or if those taste challenges are, are not met in these categories, will hinder those things. Very interesting. And actually, let's stick to this topic, Nick. Um, uh, how are you, I mean, taste and, and, and texture, uh, meaning you investing in startups, are you how are you actually figuring out IP and value in the startups early on, given the fact that in food IP is challenging because it's not like the bits and bytes investments, right? So how are you, how are you vetting those startups? How are you uh, making your bets on what's going to be, you know, flying through the roof or, or maybe not, right? Sure. You know, for us, it varies based on whether we're talking about a plant-based meat or dairy brand or a cultivated meat egg dairy brand. So on the latter side, the high-tech side, of course, these companies don't have products in the market. So when we're betting on a company, we're making that decision around a few things. So the quality of the team, certainly, the how sensible we think the strategy is. Um, one of the big issues in, in this category is certainly price point. So what price point are they going to be able to get to in time in the years ahead? And is that price point going to work for the markets that they're targeting? So on price, for example, one of the things we've looked at for the companies we've invested in are companies that if they can get the price point low enough, they have this large commodity animal protein market or markets that they can address. 
But even if they can't get the price point nearly low enough to compete on a commodity level, they at least have these secondary markets that are sizable, you know, billion dollar plus, where we can have a very high level of confidence that they will be at a lower price, low enough price point to do really well in those sectors. So I, an example of that might be uh, one of the companies we invested in in the US called Mission Barnes, uh, based in California. So they're doing a cultivated fat product for use in, in cultivated meat. Fat makes up the majority of the flavor in a meat product. And so by focusing on the fat, they can create really excellent hybrid products. So think, for example, Beyond Burger, Impossible Burger, so on, with 5 to 10% real cultivated animal fat. You get this huge boost in flavor at only a modest cost increase. So if they can get the price point low enough, um, there's a lot of opportunity here as a B2B ingredient. If they can get it lower still, there's even more opportunity in the, the pure fats category. So a pure fat product that a chef might buy or so on. But if things go poorly and they can't get the price point low enough to work really well in, those, in either of those sectors, there are still these secondary markets for very high purity, um, very, very highly purely, pure distilled fat in things like medical, cosmetics, research sector, et cetera, that have an incredibly high price point where we can be very confident that Mission Barnes will be able to meet and be below that price point while, still while at the same time having higher quality, et cetera. So, uh, long story short, that's one of the other things we're looking for for companies on the high tech side. Lastly, first movers are early movers. So companies that are doing something, whether it's a particular type of technology or the particular market, where they are the first mover, at least in a broad geographic region, in a broad category with a large addressable market. So on the high tech side, it's, it's all those things. On the plant-based side, it's quite different and there's a much different risk profile. So for us, the companies we're investing in, we're typically investing in seed stage, but nevertheless, on the plant-based side, these are companies that already have proven product market fit. So they might be on a couple hundred grocery store shelves, a thousand plus. Uh, there's already been this clear track record that yes, this product works with consumers. Not only does it look appealing to get people to make that first purchase, but the repeat sales and the weekly and monthly churn off grocery store shelves is stable and or ideally increasing. And it's clear that it's going to be expanding into more points of sale, more outlets, et cetera. And so the round, even though they're still early stage companies, there's a lot less risk there. And the round is really to grow the marketing distribution, et cetera, perhaps the, the number of SKUs they have. And so even for an early stage investor like Lever VC, when it comes to the plant-based meat and dairy side, you know, we can look at those sort of things, the real sales data, as well as the other things, team, strategy, market, the quality of the product getting feedback from various folks, including buyers about the quality, um, that can give us a pretty high level of confidence in how the company is going to do. Now, whether they're, they're going to get to 5 million in sales, 30 million in sales, 100 million in sales, obviously that's, that's all often a, you know, the, the bigger question. But in terms of de-risking the investment so we can feel confident in at least a, a decent return, and in some cases a really fantastic return, um, that's, that's kind of how we're thinking about it on the plant-based side. Makes totally sense. And and how many investments do you do um, per partner uh, in a in a year, just to get a sense uh, about how aggressive you guys are in the market? Yeah. So for Lever VC, we we began raising the fund last year. Um, we're a target fifty million dollar fund. We did first close this summer at twenty three million, and have raised more since. For the earlier stage checks that we're doing around seed stage, these are anywhere from a couple hundred thousand to seven hundred fifty k. For those checks, we've, we began deploying July of last year, so 15 months in at this point. We're completing next week our 12th uh, 
across the portfolio company. So moving fairly quickly, not quite a company a month, but uh, approaching that in terms of our, our current pace. Wow. And this doing both in parallel, fundraising plus investment, that's a chapeau. That's a lot, a lot to do in parallel. <laughs> Makes for a busy life, for sure. <laughs> Thanks for sharing this, uh, Nick. Christine, how did you build a, such a unique culture-driven and forward-thinking, uh, engaged community that focuses on collaboration, diversity, creativity, and, and transformational uh, change, especially because um, by doing our homework, we see that you mainly target Gen Z and, uh, and, and millennials, right? So share with us your, your secret sauce there. Yeah, so I mean, I've spent like over 20 years in the agriculture industry and, you know, like less on the food side, more on the ag production side and, you know, was getting a little bit um, disenchanted uh, towards the end of my corporate career after attending meeting after meeting all around the world, talking about the future, how we're going to feed 10 billion people by 2050 and mainly seeing old white men in gray suits dominating the conversation. And so back in 2011, I remember vividly walking out of one of those meetings, hearing the same conversation kind of by the same people without real energy and passion behind it. And I thought to myself, something's got to change. Like we're talking about beating ourselves, something that every single person can connect to, hopefully has a joyous experience around. And, you know, it's really fundamental to our existence. So um, together, like in that quintessential back of the napkin, brainstorming over drinks with a couple of friends, we came up with this concept of how are we going to bring young people who at that time were flooding to Silicon Valley, actually, to work in tech. How do we bring the brilliant minds that are shaking up, you know, the world and bring them into agriculture? And that was the genesis of Thought for Food. And again, like I said, we have a few things on our side. And I actually have a book coming out about this topic. Young people, millennials and Gen Zs are the largest demographic alive. And they are also the most highly educated, the most globally connected, digitally savvy, and socially conscious generations the world has ever seen. They embrace diversity. They're naturally collaborative. A large part of it has to do with the fact that they're, they've grown up as digital natives, like, and that's a pervasive trend you know, everywhere in the world. Now, of course, there's still a lot to be done to bridge the digital divide, but that's a whole other conversation. But for the most part, today's young people, um, because of how they've grown up and also the kind of world that they lived in where you know economies have tanked and um, you know the climate change has been real and something that they've seen a failure of leaders to address they've said okay we're going to turn to entrepreneurship as a livelihood choice and we're also going to try to build you know solutions that are focused on impact and with purpose and so that's why we step in to say agriculture needs this and the places where the largest proportion of young people live is in emerging economies, where agriculture is the basis of their economies and where it's dominated by you know, people over the age of 65 who are not digitally savvy and are, you know, have this important role to play in feeding the world, but like are still, you know, the the gap, the yield gap that you were seeing in, you know, important crops is is wide. And um, so we wanted to just bring in this like innovative mindset, creative, collaborative approach and bring it into this age old industry and shake things up. And it's worked. And we really aren't trying to say it's all up to young people because definitely young people have a lot to learn. So we spend a lot of our time like building bridges between incumbents and startups and also identify 
identifying these innovation opportunities. So even in this conversation, like my mind is buzzing to say, you know, functional ingredients, like there's a whole like space and like, it's not just again, the consumer product, but like fats, right? Like that, so people can like cook with like, you know, fatty materials and grease and like, how do we foster innovation there? And I mean, I even heard like, you know, some of the stuff that um, MJ was saying, about you know the supply chain, et cetera. So this is what we're trying to excite young people around, that there's the opportunity to make money, to transform the world's most important sector, and you know, to do this through the attributes that come naturally to you know millennial Gen Z entrepreneurs. And we help them hold on to those attributes in, in terms of how they innovate so that they are able to build businesses that make real impact and um, serve a purpose. And to your question earlier about marketing, I think another really interesting phenomenon. And there are a few studies that show this primarily like in the US, but that um, these young generations are actually the first generations to really put their money where their mouth is. So for older generations, it's, you know, definitely cost is like the first factor that's taken into consideration with when buying food and taste and safety. But for young people, um, actually, like they are putting sustainability and transparency into their purchasing decisions and actually proving that they will pay premiums for products that align with their values. And we have actually supported a number of startups in Canada, in Brazil, and in the Philippines that are, you know, being super transparent, like through QR codes, allowing you to buy their product and connect back with the grower and really understand their supply chain. And this is actually like a premiumization, you know, that is working in the market and setting them apart from competitors. So, you know, there's some exciting, I think, new business models to the question you were asking earlier that are being forged right now that, again, are like bringing forward like new values into the food system that have been there, but I think are like becoming more prominently um, placed in purchasing decisions. And when you say you help uh, those young entrepreneurs, are you primarily working with universities or, or is it more, uh, I mean, what's, what's, what's your strategy there to tap in, into those this, this pulsing ecosystems, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, like there's a lot happening at universities. So we do have collaborations with universities around the world. But I actually think what's really interesting is we're like, like I said, we're trying to um, create innovation through global collaboration for locally relevant impact. So we have um, 25,000 people in our community. Um, we are able to reach them through a structure that we have where we have regional coordinators, 14 of them across all key markets. They manage ambassadors. Through that, we're able to scour the planet for the best people and startups, bring them into our programs. And then we, you know, run a number of like acceleration programs, um, as I mentioned, to really take forward those startups. We also work with partners to run topical challenges. So for example, I mentioned Danone earlier, we worked with them and Mista, San Francisco based incubator on circular economy of food solutions. So we do have, we have an ecosystem approach. It's not just universities, um, but we're really trying to get to just really people who uh, are passionate about this and bring forward these innovation mindsets and, you know, want to operate what we call the TFF way, which is through openness and collaboration and bringing this new dynamic um, to shake up food and agriculture, which is, you know, sometimes a little bit, um, especially on the ag side, a little bit like uh, old fashioned compared to other sectors. And we also work a lot. And I know I'm sure Nick can appreciate this, but with investors, like to understand and appreciate the differences in this sector, you know, the timelines are, are longer usually. There's regulatory issues that aren't, that are different even than pharma because you have environmental release and human health regulations oftentimes that you have to deal with. 
you have, you know, farmer, uh, uptake, you know, um, requirements that you have to take into consideration. And oftentimes their risk appetite is different than, you know, in other sectors. And so it's a totally, it has its own unique challenges, its own unique opportunities, but that's why you need people who really understand the sector to be the right investors and in these companies that are trying to create change. Cause it's just not, it's not like investing in FinTech or software or something like this. It, it's unique. And uh, just just from a closed loop understanding, your definition of success is to that they get that they get uh, into corporation or they get funding or well, where, where do you uh, high five with your team? <laughs> Good question. So what we try to our definition of success is taking you know great ideas and turning them into startups that exist that are viable. And so we measure like how many startups we've launched. And then are they still there five years later? And have, you know, have we played a role in their success? We are starting now to measure their positive impact in the world. And that's, you know, there's different metrics for that. Like how many farmers they've reached, how many, you know, people they've um, helped to nourish and things like this. So we're working together with some partners to develop those type of metrics. But to date, it's really about the startups that we've catalyzed, supported, and, you know, that are still around. Awesome. Well, congratulations, Christine. You guys heard it out there. So if you have an idea, you're in the ideation phase, uh, ping Christine's team or Christine, right? And uh, you get uh, into a startup mode. Well, we could talk for hours, but I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Now also our team here at the Virtual Coffee, and we have uh, three already uh, filtered, uh, one each. And I would like to kick off things with... Uh, Olivia from UC Davis, California. Hi, Olivia. Thanks for the question. This is for MJ. MJ. So muscles are elastic and springly. Plant cells, on the other hand, are relatively rigid and unflexing. To put it simply, plants are crunchy and meat is chewy. So despite these differences and without animal fat, what are the viable solutions today to bring the bite and springiness of animal protein to plant-based burgers and, and quotations that can often feel crumbly and mushy in texture? Thank you, Olivia, for MJ. Yeah, okay, so great question. I will try to answer it as quickly as possible and as thoroughly as possible. Uh, I think if you look at ingredients, at their standalone level, you will find exactly what Olivia said to be true. When you combine those ingredients with the right matrix, things can begin to change. So when we're looking at the optimal bite that's really gonna match something like uh, an animal-based uh, meat product, and we're using, let's say, twin screw extrusion technology as the processing platform to create these products, the textured vegetable protein, the immediate output or extra date of extrusion can be made better by having the right moisture levels incorporated. This is really a uh, collaborative R&D approach. It's one that understands the ingredient inputs, but it's also the very rare, hard to find, talented extrusion operator who is setting those parameters and receiving the feedback that you are giving them and saying, I can fix this, I can tweak this, I can make it better. One of the cool things about plants is that we don't have to rely upon these standard ideas of how to fix a, I guess, an, an experience from, from a taste standpoint. So let's say we get a product off the extruder and we say, you know, this needs more moisture. It can be an, an idea of just adding water to the formulation, or we could say, let's dehydrate this, we'll rehydrate it later. And when we rehydrate it, we can add uh, fats and oils. That's obviously one aspect or one way of approaching it, but it could also be putting fibers 
into the dry ingredient blend in itself to create that springiness and that chew and also to retain moisture uh, if it is transported in a hydrated state. I know that's a lot of information. It really requires somebody to be actively in the R&D space for plant-based formulations to perhaps understand, um, but I hope I've answered Olivia's question. I think I, I know that I have in some ways, but maybe not as comprehensively as she would have liked. So please follow up in, the, in that case. MJ, I'm always, I'm always astounded how much I learn in, 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 in your detailed answers. So thank you so much, Olivia. Thank you uh, for your question. And MJ, thanks for uh, the reply and, uh, and making it, breaking it down in a way that also non-scientists understand it. Second question here uh, comes from San Francisco. So local uh, from Lee. He's asking, Nick, the most common exit strategy for plant-based investors to date has been acquisition by a larger firm. We believe that the Beyond Meat IPO, which was considered unusual among plant-based startups, could change that perspective in the near future. Thank you so much, Lee, for Nick. Yes, yes. I don't think that things like IPOs are ever going to be the majority, uh, the, the, the standard route to exit, but no doubt there's going to be a lot more. So I, I think it would be extremely likely that a company like Impossible IPO, that a company like Oatly, could, you can see certainly an IPO. We've also seen a couple of companies that are quite small doing very small IPOs, not in the, the US, well, and some typically foreign stock exchanges in, in, in more cases. So I think that's also a route that for the couple of companies that have done it so far, it has worked quite well for them. Whether that was a smart choice for investors or not is another question. But in terms of the company, it has worked pretty well in terms of getting financing and of course, liquidity for their investors. So yes, I think we will keep seeing more of that both from the blockbuster companies like Impossible Foods, but also from smaller companies. And certainly that's not just in the US, but in many other markets around the world. Awesome. So more of um, IPOs. Thank you so much. And also thanks, Lee, for uh, your question. Awesome. Thanks, Nick, for uh, replying. And last but not least, Laura from San Diego asking Christine, what are the key takeaways from the outcome of the 2020 Thought for Food challenge. Thank you so much, Laura or Christine. Well, that's a big question. Um, so we just had our Thought for Food 2020 challenge finale, which was a global broadcast. Unlike anything you've seen, it's like uh, Shark Tank meets Eurovision is how I would describe it. It will be available for broadcast for public viewing um, next week. So check our website for that. And I promise you won't regret it. We had DJs perform, we had dancers, and we had startup pitches from around the world. Our winner to give away a bit came from Indonesia with an aquaculture solution, but we saw several plant-based companies featured in uh, our circular economy of food prize category, some really interesting companies in all parts of the world, really, like I said, focused in this space. And then we also had in our finalist cohort, a team from the Philippines that's actually um, taking surplus bumper crops and creating Filipino cuisine um, that is, you know, quite nutritious. They, they have a, a focus on nutrition that, because they're nutrition scientists in the company. And they're also uh, kind of like taking what is a very big trend actually in experiential eating, which is Filipino cuisine and um, making plant-based 
plant-based versions of some of their, you know, uh, traditional meat-based dishes. And um, like I said, also bringing in that sustainability angle of taking bumper crops from farmers that they are using to create their products. So it's a win-win-win situation. But I definitely encourage you to check out our broadcast next week and would love to hear your feedback on it. But um, we came here to save 2020 by bringing a really like larger than life pitch event <laughs> that I hope will bring some joy into what has been a very challenging year and also really showcase that there are people around the world at the front lines of creating a better and more nourishing food system for all. This definitely is intriguing, uh, the uh, the positioning of Shark Tanks meets Eurovision. I want to take uh, definitely... But it is, yeah. <laughs> so it's great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Uh, and thank you, Laura, for... Uh, uh, the uh, questions and we are coming also here now a 13th episode uh, of our virtual coffee to an end um, amazing learnings Christine Nick MJ thank you so much for allowing us to pick your brain share it with the world and educate um, the world uh, one step at a time right I think only together we are strong um, and we are wrapping up usually with our inspirational uh, question for you guys which uh, we would like to hear your thoughts on how you are envisioning the world by 2050 or the mankind consuming eating right by 2050 what what your thoughts are on that i'm really curious to hear your vision from a future back perspective today the year 2020 how is it going to look like by 2050 i'd like to start with uh, MJ, MJ, what are your thoughts? On I was like, oh no, I might need more time. Um, okay, so I think it would be really great that by 2050, uh, plant-based alternative, meaning also cultivated or fermented sources, are uh, so affordable that it only makes sense to purchase those over legacy animal-based products. That's okay. definitely a, a wish list item for me, but um, I think that we're moving and we're making strides toward that becoming a reality uh, in the next 30 years. And I, I would like, and I think something that's very feasible to happen in the short term is that companies prioritize and act with a high level of integrity toward their sustainability initiatives and that they approach it not just from an environmental point of view, but also a, a social point of view. Obviously economic being a business, but uh, you know, people are, uh, the, the decision we make with the food that we buy is truly a vote and we can make people's lives better that are a part of that supply chain inherently by also focusing on on people's rights. So that's what I hope for in 2050, by 2050. Thank you so much, MJ. Christine, what are your thoughts? 2050, how is the mankind going to eat? What a question. I mean, I definitely have a vision of, first of all, being able to eat at a restaurant with people, but <laughs> that's just because that's been taken away from us uh, at the moment. But um, I hope- 2050, right? <laughs> exactly. I hope before 2050, we are back and you know having food be a communal experience. Um, but I think that, um, something that really like energizes me about the world of 2050 is you know i believe that through more openness and collaboration we will be seeing like all kinds of innovative experiential food products emerge and that you know that will have positive impact a net positive impact we're going to go beyond fixing problems to actually using food 
to solve climate change, you know, and to also be having a positive impact on economies, you know, on our health and on our environment. I think it's the biggest lever we have. And so I really, you know, I just joined the advisory committee for the UN Food Systems Summit, and we're, you know, bringing together all kinds of different stakeholders, even outside of the food industry, right? People like telecoms companies and social media companies to start to get involved here to shake things up and, you know, really um, make food this positive contributor to the world. And I think we could do it before 2050 if we try, but that's my vision. I love it. Thank you so much, Christine. And last but not least, Nick, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, so I think, so I, I, perhaps my views will be uh, tend more towards, I'd say less optimistic than perhaps some. Uh, I think that the food system 30 years from now will be very recognizable to what it is now. We're going to have a, probably a significantly more total, say, animal protein consumption as a result of the increase in the population. That being said, I have little doubt that the portion of that total protein landscape as part of the general food landscape is going to be more diverse with a meaningful percentage from plant-based and cultivated and hybrid products. I, I, 2050, I could view that anywhere from 10% to maybe 20% of the global protein supply and more, you know, higher figures and perhaps more industrialized, wealthier countries, lower figures in, in other countries. So I think that it's going to be progress in a positive direction overall, um, but probably on a slower time frame than, than some of us might like. Love it. Thank you so much. Well, it's coming to an end and we love always to wrap up things uh, with our broadcast with a quote, a quote that I um, crafted. I, you call it my quote because I crafted it over the last 20 years. I lived it over the last 20 years, which goes like this. Never forget where you come from because it keeps you humble. But where you come from cannot limit you where you want to go. And with that, I'm really always uh, very lucky to be the dumbest on the table and learning with those uh, meetings and virtual coffees. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much, Christine. Thank you so much, MJ, for joining us to contribute this so important mission to make the world a better place, focusing on alternative protein. I wish you a great rest of your day, and I see you soon again. Bye-bye. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.